Church, my name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. Uh, we're thrilled that you're uh, here joining us. Uh, we want to say hello to those of you on our online campus. Thanks for participating through that venue. And those in our parent viewing rooms, if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service, that's a great option. Uh, we're also uh, in this sort of second week and final week of our subliminal messaging campaign called Say Yes. And so uh, as Chandler mentioned, there's a whole bunch of cards in the back. And particularly, a couple of areas that are really huge for us are students and kids. And uh, something that you may not be aware of is that um, about 38% of our overall attendance on a Sunday is eighth grade and under. That's a huge whopping amount of kids. And uh, so it's a lot of just volunteers who say, I'm going to love that next generation. And uh, that's why we do this Say Yes campaign a couple times a year to make sure that we can continue to put great leaders with those kids. So if that's something you've been thinking about, check out that wall in the lobby on the, during the second service. And then I just want to mention this uh, before we jump in. Uh, next week, we're doing something called First Step. If you've never, like if you want to check out what the church is all about, that's a great way to do that. Uh, we do it during lunch. So we'll provide lunch and child care. But if we've never met before, if you've been coming for any period of time, and uh, I just would love to connect with you, I'm going to be hanging down right there, hanging out. And just uh, if, any, if we've never met, if you've been coming in the last several weeks, the last several months, I'd love to connect with you personally right after this service and just take a couple of minutes and say hi and put a name with a face. So if we've never met before, I'd love for you to come say hi right after this service. All right. Uh, today we are starting a brand new series. And this series is a little, uh, the, the title is not something we've ever done before. It's called Gods at War. And uh, we've kind of put this out and teased it a little bit this week. And maybe you're thinking like, what in the world is this all about? And I just want to encourage you uh, to tune in during this series. I want to encourage you to jump into a group, tune in, talk about these things. This is a series that I have been thinking about, that I've been praying about, that I've been preparing for, for several months and uh, it's something that I think is just a critical, critical topic in the life of followers of Jesus. And specifically because we're going to deal with and address some issues in our lives that are, uh, I really believe this is a series that will help us to overcome, feel a little bit more victory in the area of uh, dealing with sin and temptation. Because all of us want to follow Jesus. If you're, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, you say, yeah, I want to do my best to follow Jesus. But sometimes, and in fact, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans, he's like, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I should do, I, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And what is that struggle within me. And so that's what this series is all about. And uh, I really, really believe, I've been praying for this series, preparing for this series, and I really believe this is a critical uh, topic for followers of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you in that. It's going to help us to overcome sin in our lives, to experience more victory. And we're going to cover some ground today. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, one of the most quoted parts of the uh, scriptures is found in the book of Matthew. Uh, it's Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. He says this, uh, well, Jesus doesn't say this. This is somebody asking him a question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And so this guy comes to Jesus and he asks him, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now, for a first century uh, Jewish person, the law of Moses is everything. The law of Moses is what they learn. It's what they grow up with. It's, it centers around their whole society. Everything is around the law of Moses and learning it and applying it and following it. And so he asks Jesus this question, and Luke, or Matthew actually tells us that he asked it with a, an ulterior motive. He was trying to trip Jesus up, trying to trap him in his words. And so Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, as brilliant as Jesus is, he didn't just come up with that 
right on the spot, although he could have. He was using something that they would have been familiar with. He's actually reaching back into the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and he's quoting from the law of Moses. And specifically, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, which is a part of the Law of Moses, which is, uh, for a first century Jewish person, something called the Torah. It's something that they learned and followed and practiced. And so he reaches back, and we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And so first, Moses said it, and Jesus is repeating it, But what we discover is it's not even original with Moses. It goes back even further. We're actually going to discover this is a command given by God to Moses. And we read it in Exodus chapter 20. Now, Exodus chapter 20 is interesting because it's where we get the Ten Commandments. And if you're at all familiar with the Ten Commandments, for me, it was uh, Charlton Heston. It was a movie played every Easter. I don't know what the connection was. Uh, For some of you that are younger, maybe it's Prince of Egypt. Uh, But the Ten Commandments is a big deal in the Scriptures. They're the commands that God gives to the nation of Israel. And uh, he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and he brings them out. And now they're experiencing freedom. And he says, now, this is kind of how I want you to live your life if you follow these things. And because God loves them and has relationship with them, he wants to give them a way of living that's going to actually help them thrive, that's going to help them flourish in life. And so he says, this is the way that I want you to live. And so God established what we have come to know as the Ten Commandments. These are like, this is what God says, this is what it looks like to live and to flourish. And it's not follow these things so that you can have relationship with me. That wasn't the way that this is set up. And that's how a lot of people kind of take the Ten Commandments. It's like, if you keep the Ten Commandments, then you're good with God. And if you don't, then he's done with you. And that's not the message at all. In fact, God actually gives these not as a prerequisite to relationship, but God actually gives these to the nation of Israel because of relationship. It's not, you know, do these things and then you can be in the family. It's, hey, this is how I want you to live because you're in the family. It's really important to keep that in mind. And what's interesting is that these very commands, if you look through the Ten Commandments, it's things like don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie to each other, right? And it's, it's things like that. And you go, those are actually really good things that we would agree with, that you shouldn't do these things. And they've actually shaped the moral code of our own legal system today. That's why oftentimes in the United States of America, uh, you will see a depiction of the Ten Commandments either in a plaque or a statue or a poster somewhere around courthouses around the country. Because the idea of this sort of moral code has actually shaped our legal system here in the United States. But what we often miss is that these very ideas of morality are actually rooted in the first couple of commandments. So it's not just morality for morality's sake. It's not just, you know, killing each other and stealing from each other and lying to each other is just a really bad idea. It's actually rooted in something much deeper. And all of these commandments are important, but the order of them is actually a really big deal. It's it's critical, especially the first two. And when you read the first two, here's what it says. You must not have any other God but me. So just pause there for a second. Think about this. This is a a, a society that serves other gods. They worship other gods. They they would build temples and build idols. And they just got rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And Egypt had all kinds of different temples that they built to different gods that they worshipped and different idols. And, And so now God is saying, look, I want you to look at this differently. 
You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any, an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now, that's not jealousy the way that we think of it as a bad thing. It just means God wants our affection and attention because he created us and he loves us. And based on the idea that we love God, we don't worship anything else, we then live out the rest of these commandments. The ideas of not killing and not stealing and not, uh, not lying to each other and not committing adultery and not coveting and honoring our parents. All of these ideas are built around this idea that we want to honor God first, that we put him first. Another way to think about it would be this. You really can't break any of the other commandments unless you break the first one. You really, can't, you really can't break any of the other commandments unless you first break this commandment of don't have any other gods but me. And from the very beginning of time, the, the central thing that human beings have struggled with when it comes to uh, dealing with temptation, when it comes to our own desires, when it comes to things that we struggle with here in this world, it really comes down to our inability to see clearly this idea don't have any other gods but me. And there's a word for that in the scriptures. It's not a word we use very often. It's called idolatry. And I, I'm sure you were thinking today, like, man, I, I hope they talk about idolatry at church today. Because I'll tell you, I, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and I've had people talk to me about all kinds of things that they deal with, and no one's ever come to me and been like, you know what, my big struggle is just idolatry. Like, no one's ever said that to me. Not one time in 25 years. In fact, I would say that's probably a word we don't use very often. And I, I just think it's, it's amazing that no one's ever brought that. And yet, here, here is kind of the central issue. If we could really drill down on this, this is probably the biggest issue that causes us to stumble in our relationship with God. This idea of idolatry. Now, what does that mean? What the heck is idolatry, right? And why does it matter? My guess is you don't have a closet set up with a bunch of gods made out of gold and silver somewhere that you have this shrine to that you're worshiping, right? And yet here's what idolatry is at its most basic level. Idolatry is elevating something from good to God. It's something that can actually be good in your life, but when it becomes first in your life, when it becomes the God in your life, then it replaces God on the throne of your heart. And there are so many things that we have in our lives that are actually gifts from God, that are actually really good things. And they actually have a place in our lives. It just can't be first place in our lives. Things that, that are just, we subtly, what happens is they're, they're actually really good things. And what we don't realize is over time, we actually start to put those things first ahead of God. And the scriptures actually call that idolatry. That's what God says when he says, don't put any other gods before me. I want to be first in your life. I, I, I don't want your affection and your attention and your time and your resources and your energy. Essentially, the word for that is worship. I don't want your worship to go towards something else first. And when something takes God's place as first in our lives, Here's what happens. We feel the need to protect that thing so that we don't lose it. We, we feel the need to kind of make sure, like we take matters into our own hands and make sure that we don't lose that thing. And so here's, here's just a, some examples of things that are really, really good in our lives. They're good things. 
But when, when we elevate them from good to God, they actually become the thing that we worship. Money. It's a good thing. It's, it's useful in the world that we live in. But when we either desire it too much or we worry that we're not going to have enough and we, that consumes us, it moves from good to God. Uh, success is a good thing. It can be a gift and a blessing from God. But when we pursue it at all costs, it actually moves from good to God. Pleasure is a good thing. It's a gift from God. And when we allow pleasure to become our main pursuit in life, we elevate it from good to God. The relationships in our lives, they're good gifts from God. You know, our, our uh, spouse, our kids, our friends, our coworkers, those are good gifts from God, the people that God puts in our lives. But what can happen is if they become the number one priority in our life ahead of God, then we've gotten it out of order and we've put something else in first place. We elevate something that is good to something that becomes God. Achievement isn't a bad thing, but we can elevate it from good to God. Entertainment isn't a bad thing, but we can elevate it from good to God. Sports aren't a bad thing, but we can elevate that from good to God. When that takes the number one priority in our life, we have put it in front of our worship of God. Companionship, security, food, sex, approval, value, happiness, adventure, religion, all of these things can become first place in our life. Now, here's why this matters. Anything that we place first in our life ahead of God becomes the God on the throne of our hearts. It becomes the thing that we worship, and we're made to worship. So if we don't worship God, if we don't keep him first on the throne of our hearts, what happens is we actually create cheap substitutes to uh, take that place, and they never satisfy Money always comes up short. Pleasure always comes up short. Success always comes up short. When we do that, it becomes difficult to keep our eyes on the one true God that we are created to worship. And here's the way that the Apostle Paul describes it in his letter to the Romans. He says, they traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. In ancient times, they actually built temples with physical idols, and they would bring a sacrifice to those temples, something that had cost them something, and they would bring it as a sacrifice, as an act of worship to that God, whatever that God was. And they would literally make a sacrifice that cost them something to show their devotion to that idol and to its temple. Now today, our temples are our offices, our sports arenas, our web browsers, our entertainment venues where we actually will sacrifice something that costs us something to serve the gods of money and sex and pleasure and achievement and entertainment. It's just, it's just a different set of gods, but we do the exact same thing. In fact, C.S. Lewis is uh, an author and theologian. He, he wrote this, most people, if they really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There's desires that, for some reason, all of these things just don't fulfill. He says, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And so then he concludes and says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most notable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's fascinating. There's a 13th century monk named Friar Simon Tugwell who wrote this along these same lines. He says, It is the desire for God which is the most fundamental appetite of all. 
And it is an appetite we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, but it will not go away. If we deny that it is there, we shall face it only... we shall in face only divert it to some other object or range of objects. He says we're made to worship, and if we don't worship God, we will turn that attention to other things. And that will mean that we invest some creature or creatures with the full burden of our need for God, a burden which no creature can carry. In other words, we have desires that can only be satisfied in God. It's what we were created for. And when we turn to what God has created to satisfy those desires, instead of turning to our creator, we end up making false gods out of those things. And what we do is we serve those gods. We worship those gods. We elevate them to the place of God in our lives. And instead of living a life of satisfaction, we actually become slaves to those gods. We worship and serve those gods. We give them our time, our energy, our affection, our attention. We are worried that we will lose what those gods offer us. Now, how does that happen? You say, okay, what do we do about it? Why why does that happen to us? Why is it so easy for us to find security in the gods of this world instead of in Jesus? And this is... I've been praying that this would just open our eyes, open my eyes to see what, what takes place when this happens. Here's what it is. Number two, the enemy plays to our disordered desires. The enemy plays to our disordered desires. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. He writes that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that there is a, a real force of evil in the world that is tempting us, that is drawing us. And Paul says it's against evil rulers in an unseen world. There's an unseen world, and our primarily the way that the enemy works is to get us to put our trust in someone or something else to meet our deepest needs. That's how the enemy works. If I can just get, if I can get human beings, if I can get you to think that you have to put your trust in something else to satisfy your deepest desires, then I can get you on the wrong track, and you'll put something else as the first God in your life. In his book, Invitation to a Journey, uh, Robert Mulholland, who was a a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary, wrote about the different stages of growth that we tend to deal with as we begin to follow Jesus and we grow in our faith in Jesus. And he says, here's what Jesus addresses as we start to follow him. And he, he kind of brings it through these categories. And he says, the first one is blatant sins or uh, what uh, the ancient fathers and mothers called gross sins. And he said, basically, this is things like the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, Murder, adultery, lying, stealing. And we would all agree those are things we shouldn't do to live a good life. These are just things like we'd go, yeah, we agree with that. And then he says there's, there's this other level that's a little bit different than that, and he calls it uh, willful sins. Willful sins, he says, are things that are socially acceptable, but not necessarily in line with the way of Jesus. So these are things where you go, technically, as a follower of Jesus, I probably shouldn't do that, but everybody in my industry does that. I mean, it's not exactly ethical. It doesn't exactly line up. And as a follower of Jesus, I, I, there's something in me that says I probably shouldn't, but, you know, it's just it's socially acceptable. And so it's not that big of a deal. And then he says, if you go even deeper than that, you've got unconscious sins. And unconscious sins are things like uh, sins of ego, where I, I do the right thing, but I do it for the wrong reason because really deep underneath there's this, this ego that I'm feeding. Or sins of omission where it's like I really know this thing that God wants me to do, but I don't want to do it. 
And then he says there's this deeper level still. And this is really where the enemy does his work in us. And, and it's, so, it's such a deeply rooted inside of us that it's often difficult for us to recognize. It's so subtle. And he says it has to do with our trust structures. Our trust structures are who or what am I putting my trust in for life and security. And primarily, when, when the enemy attacks us, the evil powers and the authorities in the unseen world, it doesn't attack us through gross sins, through these blatant sins. When Jesus described Satan, when Jesus describes the enemy in John chapter 8, listen, this is what he says. He says, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of liars. The father of lies. He says, this is how he works. And so the lies that the enemy brings to us aren't things that are like, hey, Elvis is alive and living in Mexico. You're like, yeah, I don't know if I believe that. In fact, they aren't even lies that play to blatant sins like murder, adultery, uh, stealing, lying, right? It's not like, hey, you should definitely murder that dude. Like, those aren't the thoughts that come at us. It's much more subtle than that. It plays to our trust structures. Who or what am I ultimately trusting with my life? Who am I going to put my trust in? Or another way to say it would be, who is going to be the God on the throne of my life? And we see this uh, unseen enemy attacking those trust structures at every turn. In the creation narrative in Genesis, think about this. When uh, the, the accuser, the word Satan... Is a, is a Hebrew word, which means, uh, it's Satan, it means to accuse or deceive. And so this accuser, this deceiver, it, it primarily acts in deception. And so the, uh, it shows up in the form of a serpent in the creation narrative. And here's what it says to Eve. Did God really say, I mean, did God really say that if you eat that, you're going to die? Isn't, don't you think that that's not true? Don't you think that God's holding out on you? I mean, don't you think that if you eat this, God just knows you're, you're going you're to get all the same wisdom and knowledge that he has? I mean, don't you think he's holding out on you here? And, and the narrative says that Eve saw it and she desired it, and so she took it. And primarily, the, the enemy's way of attacking wasn't with weapons, it's with deceptive thoughts. We, f we find the same thing in, um, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus himself is fasting, he's fasting for 40 days, and then he's in the wilderness, and, and he's about to start his ministry here on earth, and the enemy comes to him to try to tempt him. And he's been fasting and praying, and Satan thinks, oh, Jesus must be hungry. And so he tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, why don't you just turn that stone into bread? I mean, you can do it, right? After all, Jesus has the power to turn stone into bread. And he's not telling him to hurt anybody, and he's not telling him to disobey God. But he's just, he's finding a desire within Jesus that might already be in his heart that's disordered, that's out of order, that if you can put something else first. In other words, Jesus, instead of relying on your heavenly Father to sustain you, why not just take matters into your own hands? And this is the lie that causes you and I to sin. It's, it's primarily, hey, this thing that you ultimately want and God's promise to provide for you, I mean, 
He's taking too long. Why not just take matters into your own hands? This will get you there quicker. You have the ability, you have the power, you're not hurting anybody. This will get you to the point that you want to be at much quicker if you just dot, dot, dot. And suddenly what happens is that thing, that pursuit, that becomes your God. That becomes the thing you worship. That becomes the thing that you're devoted to. That becomes the thing you give your energy to, your resources to, your time to. And Jesus combats the enemy by using the truth of Scripture. Jesus quotes Scripture back to the enemy and says, May, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, I, I see what you're doing here. It's not about just turning stone into bread. It's about whether or not I trust that God will sustain me. And should I simply trust that God will sustain me or should I take matters into my own hands? And this is exactly what the enemy does with us. Plays to the disordered desires that are already lurking in our hearts because of our brokenness. See, the enemy doesn't come out of the blue and say, hey, you should probably have an affair. It doesn't work that way. We go, well, no, that, blatantly, that's just a blatant sin. Instead, it plays to our deep-rooted trust structures. The enemy would say something like this instead, hey, man, you guys, you were so young when you got married. And you both changed so much. And you were a lot less busy before you had kids. And, you, you know, it's just not the same. And you're not happy. And things would be a lot better. And you'd probably be happier. In fact, your spouse would probably be better off if you guys just separated and went different ways. And the truth is that you did get married young. And you both have changed. And you were a lot less busy before you had kids. All of those things are true. But the deception is in this. You'd be happier if you separated, if you went different ways. And suddenly, it's, it's this subtle deception that doesn't play to a blatant sin. It plays to this trust structure. Who are you going to trust to live your life? The lie is that God won't sustain you. The lie is that you need to take happiness into your own hands. And suddenly, you've set up a new God in the throne of your heart, and you sacrifice for it, and you serve it. And then what happens? It doesn't satisfy. It ultimately doesn't satisfy. And ultimately, we sin because we believe the lie about what will make us happy. I've got to chase that because that will make me happy. And the enemy plays to those desires that are broken on some level within us. And the enemy didn't come to Eve and didn't come to Jesus with a weapon. It came with deceptive ideas. God can't be trusted. If you're going to be happy, then you better follow your own way. You better take matters into your own hands. If you seize autonomy from God and you do your own thing, you'll be better off. And folks, this is the lie underneath all lies. And if we can just recognize that, we can start to dethrone all of the gods that we've set up in our own hearts and lives. And we see this idea running rampant in American culture, don't we? Hey, do whatever makes you happy. You, you know what you've got to do? You've just got to follow your heart. You do you, man. You speak your truth. You be your authentic self. Nobody can tell you that that's not good for you. What a dangerous concept. And here's why. Worshiping the God of self leads to slavery and death. It's just, that's naturally where it leads. If, if I set myself up as the God of myself... That's what it's going to lead to, is I become a slave to myself. In fact, in 1781, Edmund Burke wrote a letter framing the idea of what America could be. And he knew that democracy was fragile, and so he wrote this 
men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. In other words, the only way to experience freedom is actually to constrain those appetites. You let them run wild, and you need a lot of external constraints to hold on to those things, to make sure that society can function. He says, since society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. In fact, we know this is true. The more self-control I have, the, the less I need external laws. But the less self-control that I have, the more I just do whatever I want to do, the more laws have to be created so that I don't hurt myself or other people. He writes this in, in 1781. He says this, It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. In other words, people who lack self-control become the slaves to the things that they allow to live their lives. And this is my favorite line. He ends it and says, Their passions forge their fetters. Their, the desires that they let just become the passions in their life actually become their prison. It becomes their chains. In other words, if I live to please myself and my desires, I actually become a slave to my desires. And they become my God. And I'm forced to sacrifice and serve and give my time and energy and resources to make sure that the God of my desires is satisfied. And that is the society that we live in right now. Today, we would actually call that addiction. The Apostle Paul called it the sinful nature or the flesh. In fact, at one point he writes, you become the slave to whatever you obey. You are the slave of what you obey. In Galatians, he's writing to a group of people in this region of Galatia, and he says this, don't be misled, you cannot mock the justice of God. In other words, he's saying this is just how the world works, and he goes into an uh, agricultural sort of uh, metaphor, and he says this, you will always harvest what you plant. He's saying you can't just, you can't plant one thing and expect something else to come out of it. You can't plant beans and expect to harvest corn. He says it just doesn't work that way. You, you can't mock the justice of God. You can't, you can't loophole away uh, the way that the world works. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. He says if you, if you sow to that, it's what you reap. And we can dress it up, we can call it ambition, and we can call it success, and we can call it achievement or pleasure or entertainment, and there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. That's why it's so subtle. But when something good becomes our God, when something good becomes our first, when we put it in first place, when we make it the ultimate pursuit, then we have replaced it as the God of our life. And the Apostle Paul says we end up worshiping that with our life because it's what we give our devotion to. We become a slave to that God. And our own human experience bears this out. There is a deep desire to worship God, to find our all in Him, to find in Him our security, to find in Him all of our hopes, to find in Him our true identity, recognizing He created me, He loves me as I am. And so my goal is to be shaped and formed more and more and more away from the brokenness of this life and more and more and more into the image of who He created me to be. And when we transfer that sense of security onto something else, it just doesn't deliver, nor was it created to. Instead, the Apostle Paul contrasts that. And then he says this, making Jesus the Lord leads to freedom and life. Making Jesus the Lord, making, setting him up on the throne of your heart actually leads to more freedom and more life than you could ever experience. And it feels counterintuitive. 
Because everything in our culture says, be your authentic self. Don't let anybody judge you. Don't, don't constrain anything. If you have a desire, fulfill it. Simply living my life for myself, doing whatever I want to do to kind of live my truth and be my authentic self, it makes a God out of me. And Paul says, if we will actually recognize that lie, that my happiness is somehow dependent on feeding my desires and my sinful nature, and if I will instead constrain those things and actually surrender those things to God, I can actually experience a true freedom and a a life without end. So in the next verses, to the followers of Jesus in Galatia, he says this, but those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Now, oftentimes this verse, uh, don't give up in doing good, is sort of interpreted as a general encouragement to like, hey, don't give up when you're experiencing hard times. And that's not a bad interpretation. But when you read this in context, uh, it really primarily what Paul is talking about is to not give up in our fight against these desires against our sinful nature. And just before these verses about the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit, Paul writes this at the end of chapter 5. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. That's why Jesus uses this same language. When he's walking on the earth, he says, if we're going to follow him, we need to take up our cross daily and crucify ourselves and follow him. That means the God of self has to die if I'm going to follow Jesus. The cross that we bear, when Jesus says, take up your cross, the cross that we bear, it's not that coworker that gets on your nerves. It's not that difficult season that you're experiencing. The cross that you bear isn't uh, the, the difficult season in your marriage or your parenting. The cross that we bear is the desires of the sinful nature and the lie that it will be the God of our lives. That's the cross that we bear, the, the cross of self that we go, okay, i got to put myself to death today so that I don't become the God of my own life. Because when I do that, I become a slave to those desires. And if we can put that to death on a daily basis, Paul says, we will experience freedom and life like we've never experienced before. So here's the bottom line. The heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. At the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. Imagine this, that you're walking along and you are uh, walking by this river, and you're out, on a, you're out on a walk, and you see this river, and as you're walking by this river, uh, you see all kinds of garbage floating in the river, and you think, we got, i got to clean that up. And so you start picking up trash, and you're like, man, this is, is going to help, and help the environment, and I'm going to feel good about this, and no river should look like this. And you see, you know, Happy Meal boxes, and you see Coke bottles, and you see all kinds of just junk floating in the river. And so you clean it all up. And you're pretty happy. You know, it takes a couple of hours, but you're like, man, I'm satisfied with that. This, this, is a, this is a job well done. You go home, and the next day, you come back for another walk along the river, and there's twice as much garbage as was there before. And you think to yourself, I don't understand what happened because I cleaned this up. And so you walk a little further down the river, and you realize that further down where the river is flowing, there's actually a garbage dump site that's been there for years. And it's just grabbing garbage out of the dump site and flowing it up river. And so by you cleaning it out, all you did was actually make room for more junk to collect and more junk to gather, more garbage to gather. And when you think about it, unless you deal with the dump site itself, it doesn't matter how much you do down river. It doesn't matter how many times you clean it up. If, unless you deal with the source, it's going to continually just fill up with garbage. 
And in the same way, the heart of this issue is an issue of the heart. At the heart of this is, it's not just about, okay, I, I better modify my behavior. It's not behavior modification. It's not, I better manage my image a little bit better. It's not image management. It's getting to the heart of who is going to be the God of my life. Is it going to be? Am I going to believe the, the lies of the enemy that says, for you to be happy, you really need to take matters into your own hands. For you to be happy, here's what you need to do. And it's not this big, crazy thing. It's just these subtle, disordered desires that we have. And say, you know what? I mean, God can be a part of your life, but really, I mean, this is really important. You should put this first. You should chase this. You should pursue this. You won't be happy unless you dot, dot, dot. And we've got to deal with the source of that. Not just try to modify our behavior, not just try to manage our image, but get to the source of who is the Lord of my life. And if you're going to deal with what comes out of your life, you have to deal with the source. So to help us do a little bit of self-assessment before we close this morning, here's a couple of questions to help us with this. And maybe you're like, I don't even know. What does that look like? Well, ask yourself this question. What disappoints you? What is it that, that it disappoints you, that when you didn't get it, when you didn't achieve it, when you didn't acquire it, it, it sent you on a path of like deep, deep, deep disappointment? That thing might be a God in your life. What about this? Where do you make financial sacrifices? Where is it that you're willing to sacrifice financially in order to achieve, acquire, experience? That might be a God in your life. What worries you? On a day-to-day -day basis, what consumes your worries? Is it possible that that has become first in your life? This is a great question. Where is your sanctuary? Where, where do you go? What do you hold on to? What do you cling to when life is chaotic and when there's tension and when there's stress? Where do you go to feel safe? It's possible that might be something that you have set up as a God in the throne of your heart. What gets your time and attention? Another way to say this is uh, look at your calendar and look at your checkbook. If your calendar and your checkbook says a lot about what you worship, Here's another one. What are your dreams? What are your dreams? What are the things that you find yourself dreaming about and you're like, man, this would be great. Someday, someday, someday. And if it's anything besides, someday I want to be whole and complete in Jesus. That's my ultimate dream. You can have other dreams. I'm not saying you shouldn't have ambitions. I'm not saying you shouldn't have dreams. Those are all good things. But if ultimately your ultimate dream and desire is to acquire, achieve, experience, it, it's possible that you've set that up as a God on the throne of your heart. God wants to be first in our lives, not because he's an egomaniacal monster, but because he's the one who created us and loves us, and he offers us what no one else can. And when you think about the other areas of your life where you've given your time and energy and affection and attention and financial resources, what have those gods ever sacrificed for you? Think about that. What has the God of pleasure? What is the God of self? What is the God of entertainment? What is the God of achievement or success or money? What have those gods ever sacrificed or given up for you? Those gods only ever demand from you. This is the only God who says, you know what? I'm going to lay down my life 
in sacrifice for you. So why wouldn't we want to align our lives around that God? Why wouldn't we want to make him first and worship him instead of finding our ultimate satisfaction in anything else? Our life is filled with a lot of good things, but let's never make them God things in our lives or they will become our master. They will become the things that we serve. And instead, let's each day remind ourselves of the truth of the scriptures, that God created us, that God loves us, that Jesus sacrificed for us, and that when we make him first in our lives, that he promises freedom and eternal life and satisfaction beyond what we can imagine. Great to celebrate good things. Let's not make them God things. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, here's what you need to know. God created you. God loves you. And God sacrificed for you to have relationship with you. When we were as human beings moving away from God, not uh, throughout human history, including our own lives, when we move away from God, God moves toward us. There is nothing else in the world that operates like that. Purely out of love for us. And then this God invites us to make him the Lord of our lives, to say, God, I surrender to you. I find who I am in you. And I want to follow your way of living life as best as I know how. And when we do that, when we give him control, the steering wheel of our life, then God says, this is the best way to live. When you live this way, it doesn't mean that things aren't hard and that you won't face hard things, but God gives you the grace and strength to get through it and ultimately promises that one day we will be with him in eternity. One day, all that is broken will be renewed and restored and that we will be with him forever. That's an invitation. That's not something you behave your way into or earn your way into. And so if you've never said yes to the invitation to say, God, I want to make you first place in my life, then I want to encourage you to do that. And maybe some of you are here and you go, I thought Jesus was first place in my life. Like, I would call myself a follower of Jesus, but I recognize I've set up some other gods without even realizing it. And I want to say, yes, I want Jesus to be first in my life. Let's just pray this prayer together. And if you want to say yes to making Jesus first in your life, just agree as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I thank you that you never walked away from me. And I pray Make me your son, make me your daughter, and, and adopt me into your family, and help me to follow you as best as I know how in your way of living from this moment on. And help me not to elevate good things to God things, to ultimate things. Each and every one of us, we pray this same prayer. May we have the wisdom, may we have the clarity to recognize the subtle lies of the enemy, and may we instead keep you first in our lives. May our lives be a reflection of your love to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.